And the first reading is from Genesis uh, chapter 2. And that's on page 2. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds in the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the, the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Second reading is from 1 Corinthians 7, that's verses 1 to 16. It's page on, on page 100, sorry, 809 in your pew Bibles. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duties to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may, be devoted, you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, about, now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for, men, for them to stay unmarried, as I am. If they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified to his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound to in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each of you should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to each and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. This is the word of the Lord. 
Uh, let me add my welcome to you as a, a grown-up, not just a child. If you've not had the chance to meet before, my name's Mark, and I, I do have the hope we have the chance to meet one another over morning tea a little later. Uh, over the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at relationships as God intended. Uh, two main reasons why. Uh, not just because they're so big for us, but first of all, to better honour God. Uh, this sermon series is not meant to be a self-help series, though I'm confident each one of us will be helped by looking at it. Our goal is that the God who purchased us at the price of his very own son will be honoured by this important aspect of our lives. Okay, so in, in Genesis 1, creation is, uh, and humanity is created in the image of God. We are designed for relationship. We're designed to relate in a way that reflects him. We're designed to relate in a way that honours him and engages with him. Okay, so reason one is to better honour God. The, the other reason is to better love others. So implied in our goal for, for 2011, our church's goal to reach three people with the message of Christ, uh, is that relationships are the means by which people get reached. That's how the message gets out, through relationship, not just kind of out in the ether, um, as good as the internet can be. You know, we all need to be good relators. Uh, we need to model godly relationships and for, for the sake of others as well as for ourselves. Okay? So basically, it's summed up by that verse I taught to the children. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. That's the framework for looking at relationships. So we're going to explore, uh, first of all, what marriage is. Next week, what marriage is for. Then honouring singleness. Uh, and finally, have a look at friendship. I know that's not every relationship. Uh, I know as well the style of the sermon will be different to what you're used to, if you're used to coming here. Uh, it'll be a little longer, so you're going to have to work a little harder. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, <laughs> uh, it won't be grounded so much in one passage, uh, and so we'll move around a bit. Uh, you make the most of the back of the, the, uh, the, the welcome letter so you can write things down. Make the most of response slips because it may raise stuff you want to ask about. How about I pray, though? Our Lord and Father, we uh, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the gift of relationships, uh, and we pray that you would help us to be humble in the way we approach relationships, that we would relate, not selfishly, but seek to relate in a way that honours you and shows that we have a love for others. Speak to us this morning, we pray, even as we may cover some difficult territory. In Jesus' name, amen. It's fair to say we live in an age with major confusion over relationships, and particularly confusion over marriage. Uh, our culture is uncertain about what defines marriage and so what happens is the bounds get stretched further and further and further. Uh, and sadly, the church may not help the situation because we're not too sure either. So I came across an article about uh, Sharon Tendler, a 41-year-old Jewish millionaire. She married Cindy, a 35-year-old dolphin. But is that marriage? Yeah. Or celebrity Pamela Anderson in 2005 had her two dogs wed on a beach. Is, is that marriage? You kind of go, no, we think that's a bit absurd. Let's bring it a little closer then. Those in de facto relationships. The current debate over homosexual marriage. You know, the young, healthy, married couple who live together but have stopped relating and given up on sexual relations years ago. You know, the tendency these days for civil ceremonies where people can write whatever they want to say and make that the basis of their marriage. Vows like this one that I found. Uh, I promise to love and care for you and I'll try in every way to be worthy of your love. I'll always be honest with you, kind, patient and forgiving. But most of all, I promise to be a true and loyal friend to you. I love you. 
you know, or, or, or vows with smaller changes, like Princess Diana, who removed the word submit from her vows, uh, a pattern repeated in lots of church weddings. So what is marriage? Now, in Hebrews 13, verse 4, we are told that marriage should be honoured by all. At the very least, that means people who are married should honour their own marriages. But more than that, we should actually honour all marriages, whether you're divorced, whether you're married, whether you're widowed, whether you've never validly married, as the legal technical term is, God wants you to honour all marriage. But you can't, un- you can't honour it if we don't understand what it is. We can't support others in their marriage. We can't bless our confused society if we don't know what marriage should be. And even more, we can't say anything on this topic unless it's encased in grace. We need to hear it in grace, we need to speak about it in grace. So talking about relationships, I know is going to touch on some painful topics. Uh, I see potential for these talks to be hurtful, or at least cause hurt, not intentionally. You know, to talk about the ideals of you know, what marriage should be and relationships should be will bring up the reality that we live in a fallen, non-ideal world. You know, we're going to be reminded of disappointments, and we'll be reminded of our own failings. And so we must seek to honour marriage knowing that it's encased in grace, knowing the love of God for us first. 1 John 4 verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So with that in mind, what's marriage? First important point, marriage is something God made. Marriage is not whatever you make it. God made it in a certain way. It is good like his creation is and it is not to be tinkered with. Uh, So we read, Gudrun read to us from Genesis chapter 2, God's creation, the establishment there of the first marriage. Uh, His observation in 2.18 is that there was something not good about man being alone. We'll get next week to talk about what the not goodness was. But his solution was he would make a woman for man in verse 22 who is like him but also unlike enough to be a perfect complement to him. And God brings her to man in Genesis 2.23 and it is because of God's purpose and his design in verse 24 that a man will leave his parents and become one flesh with his wife. God made marriage, he invented it and he made it a certain way. Uh, Many people think that that getting married is a little bit like you buy a vacant block of land and, and then you get to design and build a house together. You can invent the whole parameters of the relationship but no, it's not. It's much more like buying a house that God already built and you can move in and you can move the furniture around a little. You might put a lick of paint on and, and, and arrange where, you know, which, which ball has the pictures, but the framework is designed by God. So when you get married, you do get input into who you marry, but you don't get input into what marriage is. That's been decided by God when he made the world. Yeah? And when you get married, you don't even get to design the marriage you want. You, you, you don't even tinker with his design. We just either get to welcome it or reject it. So when you marry, you you don't decide whether you will treat this person as your primary human relationship. You don't get to trial it. You don't get to decide whether or not you'll be sexually active within marriage. You don't get to decide whether you're going to welcome children or not. You don't get to decide who leads and who doesn't. You don't get to decide the, the extent of your obligations to your spouse. All these things are givens in marriage. And our choice is either we will welcome what God has made or we will reject it but not to tinker with it. And if we don't get this uh, and we're married, I know some of us are here that day, we're going to be constantly fighting about what God has made and we will resent it. And if we don't get this and we're not married, we're going to misunderstand who will be wise to marry and what our expectations should be. But what did God design it to be? He made it. What did he make it to be? 
marriage is sex in the service of God. That's my one little line, and technically it's not my line. I've ripped it off of a guy called Christopher Ash. Excellent book. Write it down if you want to get a copy of it, and I'll make sure you can get one. Uh, marriage is sex in the service of God. That is, the sex bit carries the distinctive part of the relationship. The in the service of God captures its purpose. So I'm going to leave the purpose stuff till next week. But this morning, I just want us to see what makes marriage distinct from every other relationship. Uh, the shorthand is the one word sex, but really seven features to flesh this out. Help us see if we really are honouring the marriages we know. So first, marriage is a voluntary relationship. Okay, by this, I don't mean once you're married, you can choose whether you're going to stay married or, or not. No, I'm talking about its beginning. Uh, it, is, it is not a relationship that you have to enter. Uh, choice is not the right word because you might choose someone, but they don't choose you. Uh, it is a relationship that you enter by mutual consent. You both have to agree to be married. That doesn't rule out arranged marriages. You could consent to someone your parents found for you. But it does rule out forced marriages. It does rule out any kind of slavery arrangements dressed up as marriage. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, which we had read, kind of shows it in reverse. Um, if someone has an unbelieving spouse who no longer is willing to be married, then you, you let them go. You know, that is when someone withdraws their consent to be married, when they say, I refuse to be married to you, the marriage is over. So in our marriage services, we, we ask people to consent not just to each other, we're asking them to consent to take on the relationship and purposes God designed in marriage. And we honour marriage by showing the importance of consent. So I want to say we need to stop giving the impression to those who are single that this is simply an issue of choice and making them feel bad or guilty. Yeah? And, and we need to affirm that it is actually good for people to not feel pressure to get married. Yeah, we need to stop setting people up. We need to as well help those who are married to see that they willingly agreed to a certain package and they must stop trying to exert the choice about which parts of marriage they are willing to do and which parts they aren't. They've signed up for it. Secondly, marriage is a sexual relationship. Now, including the idea of one flesh is the idea of sex. Uh, I take it if we here today are Christian, we think that marriage is the place where sex is permitted and the only place where it's been permitted. But we may not have made that extra step to realise that this is the place where sex is required. At 1 Corinthians 7, I'll read again from verse 3. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. And in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other by, except by mutual consent and for a time that you might devote yourself to prayer then come again together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, the basic message there is you don't deny each other, you know, because you belong to each other. It captures and fleshes out what's already there in Genesis 2, that a husband and wife are united to each other and they become one flesh. You know, marriage is the safe place for sex. And I'm not talking about diseases, I'm talking about it's the place where intimacy and oneness reign and so the safety of sex can happen. It doesn't mean that you can demand sex at any particular time. Uh, even in a consented sexual relationship, um, each encounter requires its own consent. But it is to say that if you consented to marriage, you consented to a sexual relationship. And if you withhold sex, you're withdrawing your consent to be married. And if you do it for long enough, you will eventually end your marriage. 
Sex is not just the icing on top of the cake. It is the, the egg yolk of, in the cake of marriage. Yeah, some of us don't know what eggs do, do they? <laughs> to save you having to look up on you know, your iPhone uh, what, cake, what eggs do in cakes, they hold it together. It's a binding, binding agent, okay? No sex, no marriage. Now, I'm not talking about you know, a situation where something happens to change someone's capacity to have sex or about the fact that life goes in seasons where there's illness and health and, and there's extreme busyness and there's rest. I'm not saying that if for some reason you can't have sex for a week, your marriage is suddenly dissolved. I'm not saying that. I am saying that it is part of what you agreed to when you got married and that it is part of the package God designed and called marriage when he created it. And you need to willingly give in this area. Okay? It's not permission to demand sex, but when you are married, you handed over the rights to your body, to your partner. Now, we honour marriage, therefore, by encouraging those who aren't married to stay perfectly chaste. There's a word not used enough these days, chaste. Encouraging them to flee sexual immorality of every form. And at the same time, we encourage those who are married to delight and work at their sexual relationship. You know, there is nothing honourable about the um, friend called a flatmate syndrome. That is where, for one reason or another, a couple simply stop having sex. A couple I know of, Christians, we like to have sex twice in a year. It's not that they're unhealthy, it's not that they're old. You know, uh, another couple I've heard of, keen Christians, uh, effectively have stopped their sexual relationship. Not on medical grounds, but just on this, this fractured relationship. Uh, but they, need to, they think they need to uphold this concept of marriage. So in Christian circles, there's a, there's a kind of a high view of marriage as a concept. Uh, you know, we, we know that divorce is not ideal, and, but we have this confused idea of what marriage actually is. And so it works in some people's head to think we're still committed to marriage even if we've not had sex for two years. You know, we're committed, and if that's the case, we're committed not to God's design of marriage, but this fiction in our head that we've invented as marriage. Now, I'm not saying... If this is striking home for you that this will be fixed quickly, uh, there may be major issues to work through. But the godly response is you need to work through them. Thirdly, marriage is a relationship between one man and one woman. Uh, Back in Genesis, you would have noticed uh, God took a rib, made a woman to complement, not another man. Uh, The possibility of being united, of being properly one flesh, uh, of leaving your old family, starting a new family, is only available to a man and a woman. As you know, this is particularly under attack in our modern world. Uh, There is a powerful lobby group pushing to recognise that two people of the same sex in a long-term relationship can call it marriage. We should honour marriage and resist this. Yes, love people who are homosexual, but not change on what marriage is, because it cannot be marriage if they are of the same sex. Uh, If you want more info, if you want more updates on that, write on your response slip, I'll send you more stuff. If we talk intelligibly about it, maybe we can use a phrase like gay union in our society. Uh, If it continues to keep talking of same-sex marriage, we we therefore need to go and find a different word for it because we we mustn't deceive ourselves. We mustn't let the world think that there are many types of marriages. There is actually only one type of marriage. Certainly, there are lots of types of relationships. Some are godly and some are not, but there's only one type of marriage. It involves one man, one woman. It throws up as well, you know, polygamy. You might know there's instances of it in the Old Testament. Let me just say two things about that. Um, I'm guessing that's less of a struggle for our congregation. Um, if I discover it's more of a struggle, I really perhaps maybe we'll spend a sermon series on it. Um, <laughs> let me say just two things. Uh, firstly, 
Polygamy is not how God designed marriage in the Garden of Eden. And secondly, uh, throughout the Bible, there are no examples of happy endings of polygamy in the Bible. I think it's written in a narrative way to teach us how stupid it is. Fourthly then, marriage is a relationship of people from different families. Uh, Leviticus 18 verse 6 says, No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. And it goes on, if you read Leviticus 18, to list all these various close relatives that you might be tempted to approach and forbidding it. Uh, And it lists how the the previous inhabitants of the land had actually been vomited out because of their sexual relationships and behaviour. An indication, I think, that it's a command, not just to God's people, but something about the nature of sexuality broadly, because God holds all accountable for it. And the command is clear enough. Uh, The question we'd have is why? The key reason, and I'm speculating a bit here, is, is because marriage is meant to form a new family, a new tribe, a new race. It is, it is to form that new family and not simply be an extension of the old existing family. That is, it's calling on new higher loyalties than the existing ones. Marriage to a close relative doesn't actually allow you to leave your existing family as Genesis set it up. In other words, because a couple are, are forming their own family, they've got to come from different families. And we will honour this part of marriage by seeing the priority that marriage relationship has over other relationships. So some of us, and some people of us, struggle to ever leave home. I don't mean physically, I I mean psychologically. They're still committed first and foremost to their mum and dad and tempted to care more what their parents think than what their spouse thinks. And this is not good. Now, now, I'm not saying abandon your parents. We're called to honour our father and mother. But it must not include treating them as more significant than our spouse. That would be dishonouring them. And when children come along, there is a temptation to treat them as though they are more important than our spouse. Some of us as well might be tempted to treat friends of the same gender, you know, our girlfriends, as more important than our spouse, you know, or a situation, you know, maybe that's come about by the fact that we're a culture of late marriers and and serial monogamy. The idea that, that partners come and go, but friends are there forever, and so somehow people have become more committed to friends and they've been committed to their partner. You know, there are some churches out there that would have you treat their church leaders as somehow more important than your spouse. There are some places of work that would claim the same, that you need to be more committed to um, work than you need to be committed to your family uh, and your wife or your husband. And if you ever find yourself in a church or work like that, you must leave it because you're dishonouring marriage. Fifthly, marriage is a public relationship. So marriage is a public institution. Uh, It is precisely this because it's a new family. Um, The the family is a public institution and and when a new family is being formed, it's appropriate that it gets formed publicly so all know. Uh, Jesus goes in John 2 to a wedding feast, a public event where the feast is actually the wedding. Uh, On the flip side, Abraham is condemned by God for twice trying to disguise his relationship with Sarah and pass her off as his sister. He does in Genesis 12 and he does again in Genesis 20. Even in what seems like a private love poem, like the Book of Song of Songs, there are actually public onlookers commenting on their relationship. Now, this, there is an, a very real sense that the wedding, and your wedding day, if it's in the future or in the past, is, is not just about you. It's not about the couple. Uh, it's a public event. It's about the families and, and the community coming and bringing their blessing and saying, yes, we recognise these two people are now their new family. 
You know, and that brings lots of great benefits, very significant ones. It, it, it protects a marriage from outside intruders, third parties entering in. It, it protects the vulnerable from being coerced because families are there to, to bear witness and protect and assist. Uh, it protects from the possibility that people might claim that they'd never made a promise, like late-night declarations of love people say to use others and then later deny them. You know, it helps everyone know how do we relate to this couple. You know, when, when two people move in just together, no one knows exactly how to view the relationship. You know, like do, parents don't know, is this, is this a new son-in-law or is this just kind of like a passing fad and we'll meet someone again in another six months? It clarifies things. And we honour marriage by making it public and inviting others to witness our promises and hold us to those promises. Sixthly, it is patterned after Christ and the church. It is therefore an asymmetrical relationship so it's indicated back in genesis 2 when god provided a, a helper for adam that there's going to be some difference in their roles uh, not superiority superiority or inferiority but just difference uh, in the new testament the idea is is expressed explicitly that connection between marriage and the relationship that jesus christ has with his people the church marriage is a picture for all to look on of that relationship between christ christ and the church uh, ephesians 5 Verse 22 to 33, look it up later. Don't try and find it now. Well, you can if you want, if you're quick. Um, Ephesians 5 makes clear in, in verse 23 that Christ is the head of the church and Christ loves the church. Marriage is meant to mirror that. The husband is meant to be like Christ. He is to lead, he is to love his wife just like Christ does the church. Uh, it's why C.S. Lewis wrote about a husband's headship, uh, that it was never doing what you want. If you're a husband, it's never about you doing what you want. But it's expressed in, as Lewis put it, in him whose marriage is most like crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives the least and is least lovable. There you go, husbands, there's your job description. He goes on to talk about the crown of headship in marriage is a crown of thorns. And he points out the real danger is that husbands won't grasp it eagerly but let their wives wear it. The husband's role is to lovingly lead in the pattern of Christ's self-sacrifice for unworthy sinners like us. The wife is to be like the church and follow and respect her husband's leading and loving as the church follows and respects Christ. We're going to say more about this next week, but we honour marriage by encouraging husbands and wives to not be identical. You know, it is honoured, marriage is honoured when husbands choose to love their wives and wives choose to willingly, voluntarily submit. But we fail to honour it when husbands tell their wives to submit or when wives nag to be loved. Just as much as we fail to honour it by making the roles interchangeable. Finally, marriage is a lifelong covenantal relationship. It is lifelong implied in that language of one flesh found in Genesis, but it's said even more explicitly by Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 4 to 6. Haven't you read, Jesus said, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. And therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So God actually plays an active part in the creation of every marriage. He joins them together and what is joined by him should be joined for life. Marriage is made for life. Till death do us part is the appropriate way to talk about the level of commitment required. Which is why trial marriages are a joke. 
to, to trial something that's lifelong for a little while isn't to trial it at all. It's trialing something different. It's not marriage you've trialed, which is why as well faithfulness is at the very heart of every successful marriage. You know, it's the characteristic that goes along with the word lifelong. You know, it is one thing to make a promise, it is another thing to keep them. You know, and the heart of understanding God's relationship to us is that he is the faithful God and he keeps his promises and we can be assured to be his rescued people. And marriage is there to, divide, in, in some sense, provide us a picture of that God. He must demonstrate that kind of faithfulness God has. Now, it's true, we'll, we will fail. Our faithfulness won't be pure like his, but it will still be faithfulness, just with forgiveness required. You know, we honour marriage by, by, by helping those who are married take their commitment seriously. Uh, a minister I know of asks the question, um, if you were to commit adultery with one other person, or with anyone, who would it be? And he leaves an uncomfortable, awkward pause. And then he follows and said, if any name springs to your mind, you are already in trouble. Keep right away from him. You know, we honour others' marriage as well by not letting them walk away easily from the vows they made, not allowing patterns of faithlessness to creep in. I don't mean sexually, just. You know, we, we don't let them be faithless in their promises. See, God calls everyone to honour marriage, but you can't honour something you don't, don't think exists or, or if you misunderstand it. And that's the great grief of our culture. I say, if what I've said this morning has in any way challenged your thinking or perhaps your behaviour, wrestle with it. Ask me, talk to others, pray, check the Bible, repent. And if it's all old news, if you've kind of sat here as I've been talking, going, yep, got those seven before you even started, let me ask you a sharper question. Uh, Whose particular marriage are you honouring? So we can bless others by honouring all marriages. And we too will be blessed by being faithful to the reality of marriage, sex and the service of God. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we, we thank you for the great gift that marriage is and relationships are. We thank you that you have made us to love you with all we have and love our neighbours as ourselves. We thank you for the opportunity that marriage gives us to express that love, uh, whether we're married or whether we're supporting others in marriage. Father, we pray that um, the way you have revealed marriage would prove to be a blessing to us as we uh, honour it, And we pray that we would prove to be a blessing to those around us, our community as a whole, as we point them to your great design. In Jesus' name, amen.